Lord God, we invite you to be present. We invite you to be powerful. We invite you to be praised. And most of all, we invite you to be pleased. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. They say that troubles come in threes. May I share with you a November to remember. We had just completed a, or we're in the middle of a major construction project in our house. A room addition for a very small two-bedroom home, about to be a three-bedroom home. And a family room and some closet space. And we were way over our head in debt. And in the middle of all this, Diana called to say the washing machine had broken. Now, that's not life-changing, but it was discouraging. I mean to tell you, we were really, really in debt. We were already pushed, and now we're just going to go buy a washer. And then about a week later, we woke up to the sound of smoke detectors in our home, the middle of the night. And it was very disturbing because they had little LED lights flashing along with the the annoying sound. And in those brief pulses of light, you could see the curls of smoke in the air. You could smell the smoke. This was no drill. It was a frigid November night. And so we gathered up our two tiny kids, rushed them out the front door, into the front yard, called 911. The fire trucks come, lights spinning, siren blasting, men dressed in coats and hats, armed with axes and pikes, salivating, dying to start bashing the house. That new room addition. Well, before they started their devastation, the fire chief was able, fortunately, to discern the source of the problem. We had an oil-fed furnace at the time, and the furnace motor had overheated, perhaps from age, and began to heat to the point it was melting, melting, slowly burning. Left unattended, had we slept through the night, without smoke detectors, it would have come to the point where it would likely have caught on fire and exploded. That's what we were told. There would have been a huge wall of flames between us and our children. But in God's kindness, that didn't happen. And yet standing at two in the morning in your front yard with those lights spinning, it was kind of hard to praise God. Perhaps a week later, I got a phone call saying our car had been Hit. Diana was stationary, waiting to turn left on York Road. When a 66-passenger school bus, no kids on board, but a driver, perhaps with no brain on board, (laughs) rammed into that car of ours. Little Lynette was in the front seat. Tim, one day shy of his first birthday, was in the back. Every piece of glass in that car was demolished, shattered. The front seat, the driver's seat, upon impact, was so hit that the thing twisted, almost at a 45-degree angle. Can you imagine the force it would take? These are driver's seats 
bolted with significant hardware made to endure this kind of stuff, entirely twisted. The back was shoved so far up, and because of Tim's silence, she was certain he was dead. Well, the ambulance came, hauled him away. He wasn't dead. He was in a state of shock. And upon the uh, full disclosure of all that happened, we learned that Diana's shoulder had been significantly dislocated to the point it required surgery. She never regained full motion of that arm to this day. Would you think less of me if I told you honestly, I did not feel like praising God after any of those. So, I didn't. I did not. But I should have. You say, what do you mean? That's a tall order. Praising God after your washing machine went out, your furnace melted shut. $5,000, by the way, for that. Decades ago. That's a lot of money. Furnace melted shut. Car destroyed. Now needs replacing. Diana's shoulder permanently, permanently messed up. But is that really such a tall order to praise God in stuff like this? Or is it possible? Is it possible that's the biblical way we're supposed to live our lives? Praising God in the middle of the storm. Praising in the middle of the craze. I wonder if we could sit down with every person in this auditorium, every person watching online, and if what if we were to hear your November to remember stories? What would we hear? Oh, you've got them. Maybe stories that would make ours seem tame. What would you tell us about the trials and tragedies that ambushed you? Now, would you be able to tell me, you know, John, here's the thing. Through it all, I was faithfully able to praise God. Yes, I did. In the middle of all that craziness. On the other hand, maybe you're wondering, what's the big deal here? Why is this all so very important? Short answer, because it's important to God. Today, we're going to learn from someone who had his back against the wall but never lost his grip on praise. I refer to David. Maybe you've heard of him. He'd been anointed as successor to King Saul, and that didn't make Saul happy, to the point that Saul was jealous, deadly jealous, to the point of hunting David, seemingly determined to take his life. As we approach today's scripture, keep in mind, this is not the first time that, the, that David was in Saul's crosshairs. He tried to kill him numerous times. Javelin throwing competition. Mm -hmm. David is the target. David knew he was in grave danger. Saul's spies and surveillance teams had done a remarkable job tracing his whereabouts. They determined that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. You're looking right now at the wilderness of En Gedi. Diane and I were just there. Three geographic keys help us understand why anybody would hole up here in this deserted wasteland. First, En Gedi is deserted. Think about it. If you're on the run, you don't want to be where people are. Great for disappearing. Great for goats. Second, it features lots of caves, hundreds of places to hide. I mean, look at them on the screen. 
Third, and Getty has this, water. Yeah, <laughs> a rare and precious commodity in that wilderness. As, as Saul's forces drew nearer, David and his men hid in a cave. Maybe the very one that we're looking at now. You can read the story for yourself in 1 Samuel 24. It mentions that 3,000 of Saul's finest soldiers were on the move. Army rangers, green berets, navy seals, all hunting David. By the way, what do they call a group of Czechoslovakian special forces guarding a section of the road? Well, that's a checkpoint, of course. What do you call the Walrus Special Forces Group? The uh, Tusk Force. All right, those jokes might be funny. Might, might. But this story really isn't. How would you feel if 3,000 elite troops, that word elite, that's the word in, in your Bible text, elite troops were pursuing you? How would you respond if you were tucked away in that cave, maybe, maybe brushing away a scorpion? Maybe staring down at your boot in the darkness, ready to crush a, a, an adder snake or a viper snake that would emerge from the shadows. Knowing that any moment, forget the snakes, forget the scorpion, Saul could appear and you could be discovered and slaughtered. Well, as we know from the account, he did appear. Let's find out how David responded and see what we might learn from him. We're going to turn to Psalm 57. And if... If you're able to do so comfortably, would you stand with me as together we honor the reading of the word of God and read that word together? The verses will be on the screen. This is a miktam, a song of David when he was hiding in that cave. Starting at verse 1 together, be gracious to me, God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from the heaven and save me. He rebukes the one who tramples upon me. Selah. God will send his favor and his truth. My soul is among lions, I must lie among those who devour, among sons of mankind whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue is a sharp sword. Be exalted above the heavens, God. May your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. Selah. My heart is steadfast, God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you, among the nations. For your goodness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens. May your glory be above all the earth. Thank you, and you can take a seat. 
Boy, there's some powerful imagery here, and with it, some powerful insights. If you're taking notes, we're heading right to first point here. David's fears were real. David's fears were real. His fears were real because those troops were real. Keep in mind, Saul doesn't have 30 or 300, but 3,000 forces, all elite, all searching for David. His fears were real because his resources were limited. I mean, his back was against a literal stone cave wall. And unless, unless God delivered him, this would be his end. That's pretty serious. He had a reason to be afraid. And did you catch verse 4 in Psalm 57? I love it. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who devour, among sons of mankind whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue is a sharp sword. Lions? Spears? Arrows? Sword? David uses these as metaphors here, but in his case, those spears were real. The arrows were real. The swords were real. The danger was as real as the claws of a lion. This is what David was up against. David wasn't exaggerating. Hiding in that cave, his life could have been snuffed out at any moment. Now, maybe right now, you feel just a bit like David. Oh, in a 21st century context, for sure. But your resources are limited, maybe dwindling. (laughs) Your back is against a wall. This thing, whatever it is, I don't know what it is, but you do. Your thing will be your end unless God delivers you. You hear the growl, maybe, of the lion of loneliness. You face the spear of spiked conversations, words intended to kill you and your reputation. Somebody at the office has got it in for you. Maybe you feel the sting of the arrows of abuse or arrogance. Maybe it's the end of a dream, the end of a job, the end of a marriage, the end of a life. Now what? Now is the time to praise. That's what. Right in the middle of the craziness, or the craze, as I like to call it, David did, and we can too. And that, folks, is this sermon in one sentence. Praise in the craze. By the way, that's more than a cute phrase. It is strangely strangely grammatically accurate. The dictionary defines craze as to make someone insane or wildly out of control. Well, fear will certainly do that, won't it? Second definition, a network of fine cracks on a surface, as in the lake was frozen over but crazed with cracks. Maybe that's your patience right now. Maybe that's your stamina. You're about to crack up. Well, we're going to eventually get to your story, but first back to David's. Even though David's fears were real, notice that his praise was real. His praise was real. Don't miss this astounding gear shift, I think, between verses 4 and 5. Check this out. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who devour, among sons of mankind whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue is a sharp sword. Now, verse 5 follows immediately with, Be exalted above the heavens, God. May your glory be over all the earth. I have read this many, many times and gone, What in the world? 
spears, arrows, lions, sharp swords. Be exalted, yes. David is praising God while he is among lions, while he lies among those who devour, while he faces men whose teeth are like spears and arrows, while he faces tongues that are like swords. Yes, 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 and there's more. Look at verses 6 and 7. Same thing. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is, is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. Selah, verse 7. My heart is steadfast, God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Bear in mind, there's a net that has been set for David. There's a pit dug for him, just his size. But David says, I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. You say, that's not normal. You're right. You're right. Praise in the craze is not normal. Praise in the craze, if you're taking notes, is not natural. It's not natural. What's natural is to tense up. What's natural is to flee or fight. What's natural is to give up hope, right? At least me. In this text and others, we learn that we learn to praise in the insanity, in the stress, in the tragedy, in the turmoil. In other words, we must learn to praise in the craze. Recently, I was working on a major project for Moody at home. We're there most days, like a lot of workers still are. And there was a a whole cache of audio files that somehow disappeared. I'd worked on them the previous day, and they were now gone. I looked at this folder and that folder, this hard drive, that hard drive, an external hard drive, Google Drive. I was searching the neighbor's hard drives. Well, not but I couldn't find those files. Let me tell you, my pulse was jacked. And right there, in the middle of the craze, I made the decision to stop and praise God right then and there. To me, this made no sense. I had no solution. I had no assurance that things were going to work out. They might not have. But I decided I'm going to stop here, pause, and praise God anyway. What happened? You know, the most marvelous sense of release swept over me. I kid you not. Immediately, immediately, as soon as I had done that, I had a sense of peace. The problem isn't solved. By the way, those files later did somehow magically appear from nowhere. I have no explanation for it other than the fact that God might have been asking Are you willing to live out the sermon before you preach it? He often does that, you know. This discipline, this this choice to praise God in the craze, it's supernatural. It's not natural. It's supernatural. It requires nothing less than the supernatural. But there's a reason that we must learn this supernatural praise. And the reason is God wants to give you something supernatural. God wants to give you peace in the middle of your worst storm ever. So no, it's not natural. It's supernatural. Think of it this way. The peace that you need right now 
is not natural, it's supernatural. Your storm is that big. Your problem is that terrifying. But remember, God calls his the peace that passes all understanding, right? Philippians 4, 7. Jesus said, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled nor fearful. John 14, 27. Listen, there is nothing that Jesus touches that is not supernatural. There is nothing that Jesus touches that is not supernatural. His promise is supernatural. His peace is supernatural. His very person is supernatural. And here's the brutal truth. I hate to break it to you, but craze is normal. Calm is not. (laughs) Right? Craze is normal. Calm is not. Most of us live our lives spent somewhere between troubled and terrified. At least I do. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. As Newman Hall put it, who expects the ocean to be always calm? Discipleship is distinguished rather by exposure to troubles than exemption from them. Don't miss this. Christ has promised to deliver us out of the storm, but not to secure us from encountering it. I think about Job. Consider this unthinkable comment he made after his children's lives were taken, his cattle stolen, his fortunes demolished, his home destroyed. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. Wow. Talk about praise in the craze. Here's the deal. The most difficult kind of praise to give is the kind we offer when we are most confused, most distraught, most grieving. That's costly. And that's the very sacrifice of praise that God honors the most. I'll say it again. The most difficult kind of praise to give is the kind we offer when we are most confused, most distraught, most grieving. Praise is normal. Calm is not. Problems are guaranteed, but praise is not, right? It's not automatic. Look at Paul and Silas in Acts 16. You know the story. Their backs were beaten with rods. You know, I hesitate to even think about that for very long. Beaten with rods. It's hours later, after midnight, and by now those wounds, the blood has somewhat congealed. There's pus. It's nasty. Their feet are in stocks. They're sitting in their own filth. And you know what happened next. Verse 26 recounts about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to all those Getty songs. That's praise in the craze. And you know what happened next, right? An earthquake shook those locked cells, doors open. Much more importantly, the jailer and his entire family were saved right on the spot. Paul and Silas had learned to praise in the craze. And that brings us to your story. You and I must learn to praise in the craze because this is where we live. 
It's where we live. You know, you look at Psalm 57, and, and you'll notice how problems are woven in and out, in and out. But notice how praise is woven in and out, too. And isn't that really an image or an allegory of our lives? We're constantly weaving in and out of problems. Mine is, yours is. So our hearts must be continually weaving in and out of praise. Problems are guaranteed, but praise is not. We must praise in the craze. Having shared this sermon, I can almost guarantee this for you and for me. All right, fasten your seatbelts, folks. God will very likely, very quickly, dump something into your lap if you don't already, already have a something there that will feel difficult or heavy or disturbing. And in that moment, you will have a choice. You can whine and complain and grow anxious and get uptight, my first reaction, which is natural. Or you can invite God to do the supernatural through you. With God's enabling, you can praise in the craze. I got an email from a friend who works at a radio station in Montana. Lois connects with me on weekly promos that we create for our program, The Land and the Book. And she's also a full-time farmer who raises 200 head of cattle and the wheat to feed them. She's going through a very stressful season right now, so in one of the emails I offered to pray for her, this is her reply. Frankly, we are in a terrible drought. We desperately need rain as there is no grass for the cattle and the hay is almost gone. Last year, my wheat crop sizzled into the ground. I didn't even start the combine. But I keep trusting. And I love the 8th and ninth verses in Psalm 147, where God promises that he covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. The storms seem to miss this area of Montana. A few sprinkles, and that's it. Thank you for praying. I'll try to find my umbrella. That is praise in the craze. So if you're facing some trouble right now, maybe you're in a drought right now, need the rain of God's grace in your life, try it. This praise in the craze. Praise. In the craze. And don't forget to pack your umbrella. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to do this. Do you know our hearts prone to whine and complain and worry and fixate on everything other than praise? Would you help us do the supernatural? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.